0: I just thought I would fire a few questions your way so that we get to know the man behind the ideas, so to say, because uh, Marcel Proust, is that how you pronounce it, I think so, he devised a questionnaire, I think 50 questions, that if you ask them all, you would get the proper essence of a, of a, of a human being. I won't ask you all, all all 50, I'll settle with six, so I'm just going to fire these your way and uh, just respond in a not too well thought out manner, just oh, okay. whatever comes to your mind. So, what is your current state
1: of mind? My current state of mind is um, intrigued and, and somewhat baffled and slightly trepidatious that you're going to fire a question at me and I'm going to answer instantly and um, reveal something of myself that I don't want to reveal. All right.
0: I was thinking more like the current, uh, this current part of your life, but you were thinking the oh, current right, so minute. No, 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 that's, that's fine. Uh,
1: well, generally speaking, I don't know. I think it's, it's, a, it's a horribly fascinating time to be alive I think it's that the world is interesting in the worst sense of the the word but it's kind of gripping isn't it you know I think um, you know we've got all sorts of strange things happening politically around the world environmentally you know we do seem to be still slipping towards pretty bad scenario Um, and Yeah, it's a bit, and and as someone who's half Italian, I'm about to potentially lose my European citizenship, as it were. Right, so slightly anxious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well,
0: we can just move on. Uh, Maybe this will give a more positive response.
1: What is your most marked characteristic? <laughs> by, by most Mark, oh God, depends who you ask, actually, isn't it? I mean, I suppose I would like to come up with something that sounds noble or something. I think, I think it's um, what is perhaps often an excessive kind of scrutinising. I kind of scrutinise indiscriminately, which means which is very good when you're doing philosophy. It's not very good when you're looking at how someone's making an omelette. You know, so uh, it's it's a bit infuriating. You know, you wouldn't, you really wouldn't want to live with me. I should assure you.
0: (laughs) Okay. Um, What is the trait you most deplore in others?
1: The trait I most (laughs) deplore. There's a questionnaire. There's there's a newspaper questionnaire which asks the question: What trait do you most Deplore in yourself and what it's followed up by what trade you most deplore in others. Well, right? We're doing Even it in the, the other way, way around. around. Yeah. Oh, okay. Are oh, we doing it in this way around? Okay. Yeah. In that case, it's a two part answer. All right. What do I most deplore in others existing? <laughs> okay. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. what, <laughs> what do, do a... you most deplore in
0: yourself? Misanthropy. <laughs> All right. Huh. Can we get a <laughs>
1: round of applause for that? <laughs> I feel like <laughs> I built it up far
0: too much. Um, Well, now that I know that you're a full-on misanthropist of the word, uh, this question might not be very um,
1: effective, but who are your heroes in real life? Um, Well, yeah, I mean, actually, yeah, I think my intellectual heroes are human Aristotle. Um, And just, I think, for their combination of just sort of Common sense, empirical evidence-based thinking—you know—so they weren't away with the clouds like Plato, I think, was. Um, I mean, imagining that you know rationality could provide us with, you know, certainty and clear answers. But they were very, very shrewd. What's interesting about both of them is, though, that I don't want to give too long an answer. Is that neither of them were kind of great heroes in in any in the standard sense of the, of the word? They weren't particularly. Yeah, altruistic, they didn't sort of lay down their lives for anybody, they didn't make great sacrifices, you know. But nevertheless, they, they, they had very great insight and, and great ways of thinking, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a good segue to the final Proust question. What is your idea of perfect happiness?
1: I, th- I think perfect happiness is is a ridiculous idea frankly I mean I, I, I really I really think it is the, my, my closest idea of perfect happiness is simply being in the right company eating something delicious yeah a perfect happiness in that sense is is, is something which is essentially transitory transient yeah and doesn't last um, Perfect happiness as an extended state would be ridiculous. It would suggest stasis. It would suggest no movement. You know, so uh, the, the the dynamism of life means that you, you, it never lasts. But you can have moments of perfect happiness, like beautiful piece of food, wonderful piece of music. Sometimes you just at a concert or something, and it's just the, the the right thing. So it's those it's those moments. What Kate Bush his song "Moments of Pleasure" is all about, right?
0: Well, I can't offer any food, but I hope we can offer good company. <laughs> for I could sing for you too, but I probably <laughs> won't. To. So, yeah. um, so uh, going over to to your book, um, again, um, a very fascinating read, uh, tying together such complex systems of thought in in a very accessible uh, manner. You you write quite a lot about the differences between typically Eastern philosophy and and Western philosophy, and um, the role of wisdom. Mm. So in in the East, uh, it would perhaps be more acceptable to refer to someone who is just considered wise and their ideas being true because they are wise. While in in, in the West, we would rely on our reasoning. So, what, in your view, is uh, the role of wisdom in philosophy, and, and what should it be?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have got to be careful with the words the words here. I mean, I, I I wouldn't want to say East West in that neat way because you know, Indian and Chinese thought are significantly different. Um, and I think what you might be referring to is perhaps more evident in, in, in India perhaps. Um, there seems to be quite a strong idea, in a, a recurrent idea in, in Indian philosophy, that you know, full understanding is not a matter of pure ratiocination. right? So reasoning alone doesn't get you to the ultimate truth or the ultimate reality. What's required is, is a kind of a kind of insight. And insight is something that takes a kind of mental training, perhaps a special kind of gift. It's possible somebody is gifted in that way. And having a, achieved that kind of wisdom and insight in that sense of the word, you can understand things which no amount of pure sitting down and reasoning will help you to get at. Now, I think if you think about it in those terms that's going to raise alarm bells for a lot of people who who value you know reason rationality and thinking and so forth because the danger of that is it kind of suggests that uh, you know insight understanding and wisdom is some kind of mystical property and it also means that how do you challenge the people who claim it for themselves right and I think At its worst, that's precisely what it leads to. Culturally, I think India has been plagued by self-professed gurus and sages who are often either deluded or actually frauds, right? So obviously that idea, I think, does have bad forms. But there's there's an element of it which I think is perfectly reasonable and is actually something we might agree with. Aristotle, I, I came across an interesting little bit in Aristotle where he said that the uh, the judgments, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but the judgments of the experienced, or whatever it might be, deserve taking into account even when there's no arguments to back them up, right? This is kind of a paraphrase. Um, so the idea is kind of there. But I, th- I think the way to, to make it most congenial is to realize the fact that actually, if you think about philosophers, smart people you might know, There is a difference between those who are just very clever and those who do have what you might call insight, right? There are very smart people who can just play around with arguments and logic, but to no end. And and also with no real sense of what's important or at stake in the issue. And I do think that any good philosophy, any good thinking requires not just that kind of, Ability to think rationally and to construct arguments. It requires an ability to attend sensitively to whatever it is you're trying to understand, and to sort of like and to see something in that. Now, that's not the same as the kind of as mystical insight, and it's perhaps not exactly what is often meant in the Indian tradition. But it's not a hundred miles from that. So that's what I kind of see as the, the positive way of thinking about that.
0: Mm. Yeah, um, I would probably say that the, one of the great victories of Western thought is that we'd found this great tool with which to shield ourselves from uh, demagogues or, or um, self-proclaimed prophets and sages. Not that we always use it, uh, yeah. obviously, but, um, uh, yeah. but there seems to be certainly a case where reason can be taken too far. I'm thinking like of the French Revolution, which you bring, which you bring up in the Ooh. book, uh, where they developed a cult of reason. And that didn't work out all that well. So, is there a notion of like enlightenment gone bad? Uh, a notion of enlightenment in need of, let's say, biblical values to not turn out uh, to not turn into tyranny?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say biblical values. I have to say because I don't think the Bible has any particular monopoly on the kind of values that that we kind of want. Also, I have to say as well that you know I'm not the kind of person who's decided that you know, Western thought and philosophy is all degenerate and nonsense and we need to to look east. There are many things about Western philosophy which I think are extremely valuable. And I do agree with you that one of the most important things is this sense that, you know, to be rational is to essentially be able to be held to account and to be able to defend yourself in ways which are accessible by others. And I think that really that really is important. Um, so that's why I only have a qualified support for the idea of wisdom as something which requires special insight. Uh, I think that you sometimes we sometimes do have to defer to the superior judgment of experienced people, but only in very specific domains and only when we've got a very good reason to think such expertise exists, not when people are claiming other stuff. But, the, so that's, um, but then to go to the enlightenment gone bad kind of um, way of looking at things. It's quite fashionable to bash the Enlightenment now, um, and there are people who make a very good living doing it. <laughs> we won't name any names. And, and I, th- I think the point is that they're, they're, they're exactly right in what they say is wrong, but simply wrong to say that that's what most Enlightenment thinkers were, or even what we're doing. The Enlightenment, most of the best Enlightenment thinkers, like David Hume, right? The Scottish Enlightenment was the the best Enlightenment of all, I I can say in Scotland. Um, You know, Hume was someone who never, you could never accuse him of having an excessive faith in progress or the power of reason. He was the most skeptical person about reason and rationality you can imagine, right? In the sense that... He did not believe that unaided reason could generate any substantive truths about the world at all. He thought you always had to reason from experience, and when you're reasoning from experience, you're never guaranteed that you're going to get conclusions which are right. You're you're, you're always making generalizations which lack logical rigor. So someone like Hume never had a naive belief in, in the power of reason or the inevitability of progress none of the great enlightenment thinkers do however i think sometimes the the excitement of you know what has been unleashed by um, the advance of reason and science does sometimes lead people to have excessive faith in that to believe that progress is somehow inevitable or to think that you know let's put it this way, to confuse the best state of current science with some kind of certainty and conviction. And you, you, you see that in ver- various forms, and I think politically it's quite important, because well, I'm not a conservative, but I think that you've always got to... The, the conserv- traditional conservatism of the kind of Burke talked about does have a point, which is, you know, there's always a sense in which you meddle at your peril and you never quite know what the consequences of changing a system will be. That's not a reason, that's not a reason to not meddle or to not do anything, it's a reason to be very careful. And an excessive confidence that, because we're rational now and because we're scientific, we can devise the best ways of running a society, tend to be extremely dangerous, it didn't, do the Soviet Union very good, for right. example, yeah.
0: Mm. Coming up on, on that, the, um, you, r- you write in the book about science for humanity's sake, or science for science sake. Mm. Um, and that uh, I think you bring up a f- few prominent philosophers like Aristotle also saying that whatever whatever discoveries we, we make should serve the interests of humanity. So my question then would be, or is, um, who d- gets to define the interests of humanity.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, again, that's an interesting one. I mean, in, in the book, I, I, I kind of like... Just, I, I, I sort of walk a line between not sort of pretending I'm completely impartial and offering no opinion at all, but at the same time trying to be, shall I say, a, a fairly generous host, but not a completely uncritical one. And on that particular issue, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure where I'd ultimately come down on this. I think that the idea of pursuing knowledge for its own sake is actually quite an important one and I think it's, it's worth defending and so it's not just science for science's sake but all kind of knowledge for its own sake a lot of philosophy gets criticized for being useless and having no practical use but I kind of think you know part of what makes us you know, part of what makes us what we are is, is our curiosity and our desire to understand and we should be able to satisfy that for no other reason that we we want to satisfy and it's interesting However, the the problem is that if you sort of like go along that line too complacently, then you might lose sight of, you you might not be thinking about where certain things might lead, right? And so, you know, defending the right of people to follow the argument wherever it leads and not think about the moral consequences is potentially dangerous. In science, it could lead to certain um, things, but Also, it relates to free speech as well, actually, because, again, a lot of people, of course, I believe in free speech, but at the same time, people ought to be aware of what the potential consequences of free speech might be. Um, You know, so you might have certain strong views about Islam, for example, but you've got to be aware of the fact that if you express those views in certain ways, in certain forums, that may have consequences for people. It may mean that a a Muslim may find themselves being victimised even though they are you know, a perfectly uh, you know, good citizen member of society and, and, and much better than the people saying it. So you, you've got to be careful. Who decides? Well, in these questions, it's, it's got to be a collective decision, I think. You know? There are no moral experts, and there are no moral authorities. And so when it comes to the really important things about how society is governed, we have to reach kind of collective decisions how exactly we do that is is tricky because i don't think the way you do that is necessarily put it to the vote right i think that democratic systems at their best work by a division of labor and the the job of the general population is to charge the right people with making decisions and to hold them to account if they do it wrong. It's not their job to make up their minds on every single issue. So for example, if we're talking about things like medical ethics and scientific ethics and so forth, the best way to resolve that is for governments to convene commissions of people with a broad range of expertise and get them to think about it very seriously and to come back with their recommendations. That's actually what has been done on all sorts of things. Mary Warnock chaired such a commission into in vitro fertilization and so forth. So we have a good record of those kind of committees coming up with very sensible decisions, which are not only sensible, but they can command the support of the majority of people. So. Um, that's that's no, no secret to how it works. Mm.
0: Do, you view, um, do you think science has a moral component? Can science
1: give us moral answers? Oh, well, okay, two different questions. I'll take your second one's more interesting. Can science give us um, moral answers? No. <laughs> but the long answer is, well, this is very interesting because, you know, um, Sam Harris wrote that book, The Moral Landscape, which may, some of you may know, in which he sort of claimed, you know, how... Uh, science could effectively give us moral values. I've just actually finished reviewing a book for Wall Street Journal, and the book is called... I'm not going to remember, which is terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Especially for a podcast.
0: Um, Especially for someone
1: who just reviewed it. Yeah, yeah I can't remember the title. The title is the least important thing. But essentially, it's about the book is about, they say, the tragic quest for a scientific basis for morality. And um, I think, the, 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 although I've got some issues with it, I, overall it's kind of right. Science can't give us morality on a plate for reasons that David Hume <laughs> uh, gave many years ago, which is that you can never arrive at an ought from an is. So in other words, um, science can make as long a list as it likes of the, thing, the way the world is, but morality is concerned with with oughts, and they're two different kinds of statement. And I think that's true. So science, science can inform our morality in many ways. It can tell us things about, for example, about how our brains work and how our minds work. And so what's actually going on when we're making moral decisions, right? Which could be extremely useful and important because that might tell us things which might make us think about our moral thinking differently. It can also tell us things about harms and benefits. Now, I don't think there's any moral system which is indifferent to facts about harms and benefits. So for, exi- for ex- obvious example, if, you, but if it were the case that you know, animals felt no pain and couldn't suffer, there wouldn't be a moral issue of vegetarianism. Uh, given that animals do suffer, there is a moral issue there and resolving that science can help us science can help us with issues around abortion and everything by telling us exactly what kind of state of development a fetus is in so there's lots of science can do to inform our morality but it can't tell us ultimately what is right or wrong that's something which we kind of have to do um, philosophically rather than scientifically Mm.
0: Um, something we talk a lot about in the society and something i Worry quite a lot about personally is um, this what void the decline of religion or Christianity in specifically in, in the West will leave. I mean, if you're a secularist, you you certainly think that there are uh, good things about that. But you know, I I love going to churches. I I, I do recognize that there's no other force, um, intellectual force that brings people to to construct churches or buildings like it than than religion. At least not that I that I know of. Um, and I, I worry about what other force could have the same uh, effects in terms of community building, uh, spiritual guidance. So, how do you view the prospects of philosophy uh, serving the same uh, interests and purposes that religion has served us so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold out much hope for philosophy doing it. I have to say, um, it, this is a very difficult one because there is a sense in which. Yeah, our, our culture is a Christian one, um, that's undeniable. Even Richard Dawkins says that without any apology. He, he says he's a cultural Christian. Um, and because it's been at the heart of our culture for so long, you take it away, it leaves a hole. Now that doesn't mean that any society without a religion like Christianity in it has a hole in it. right? Um, ours has a hole in it because there was something there before. I think what's quite interesting, if you look to China, for example, China has not got a history of religion in the Western sense at all. Confucianism is not a religion and is very much concerned with the here and now. And morality is very explicitly about the governing of social relations. You know, There isn't any kind of appeal to the transcendent there at all. So it's obviously possible to have a society in which there is morality and social order and meaning which has no reference to to God or religion at all. But the point is that's not where we're starting from. We're starting from a culture where Christianity has provided a lot lot of the scaffolding and and frameworks for the the way we think. So I don't think it's unreasonable to worry about what happens um, when it goes. On the other hand, I have to say that if you look for the actual evidence that the decline of Christianity has actually led to any major problems of morality on balance. I think it's severely lacking. Um, the, the Western countries, which seem to do better on most of what you might call proxy measures of morality, such as equality, rights of women, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they're often the least religious societies. And there were sometimes ones that were very religious. Um, Scandinavia, you're from Scandinavia, right? I mean, you know, that was a, a very Christian culture, and a lot of the Christianity there was quite severe, as I understand. Um, and it's now one of the most secular parts of the world, and it stands up very well in terms of social attitudes, equality, and so forth. Similarly, you know, I you look at younger generations uh, today, and they, they seem at least as concerned, if not more so, with the big moral issues than, than older generations. So I, I think that although it's not an unreasonable concern, if we look at the evidence, I think it doesn't look like we're seeing anything like a, a moral decline and crumbling of society. And as for crisis of meaning, well, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm a little bit, I, I'm not really sure that religion provided as much meaning for people as it officially did. I think, you know, um, I, I think people have always, you, you never see anyone pleased or happy at funerals, you know, uh, no matter when they, even though they, even when everyone officially believed that they were going to, to heaven or whatever it might have been. Um, People found life very hard and tough and and wailed and despaired against the way the world was even when religion was Much more dominant. So I think The fact that you see people struggling to find meaning and purpose in life is not a new thing because religion is in decline Um, Maybe it's a bit more out in the open because Previously if when people were feeling like that they might just sort of like tell themselves. Well, you know It'll be okay in the end he's in charge but I don't know how many people really believe that you know life didn't seem to show anyone in charge did it you know Right. so um
0: <laughs> um this will be my final question what, what I what I do uh, like in the meantime until we figure figured out something to properly replace religion yeah. when I'm in spiritual need intellectual need is I go to people far wiser than myself so I thought it would go to you <laughs> and if you have if you were to have like one advice to one piece of advice to uh, a student here at the university, uh, and how they would best go about their intellectual
1: pursuits. About their intellectual pursuits. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I I'll, I'll you know not the whole meaning of life. Intellectual <laughs> pursuits. Um, that's that, well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I th- I think the, the the important thing about intellectual pursuits is to sort of. I to keep your eye on the ball, right? There's there, issues and can take on a life of their own, you, and they can lead you down blind alleys. You know, you can inherit, trillion philosophy, you can inherit inherit problems and questions from your discipline, and end up pursuing them, and only later realise it was just the wrong question, right? <laughs> and there's better questions to be asked. So I, I think that you know, there's there should be a kind of you've got a sort of whittling a bit here, but. I suppose you've got to have a certain sort of, like, questioning and in- integrity about what you're doing, you know. Make sure that, whatever, if you're going to devote time to something intellectual, make sure it's worthwhile, and make sure it's something that really interests you, and make sure that whatever question you're asking it's the right, it's the right one, and answering it is going to help in some way. I don't mean help necessarily in a practical way, but help see clearly and you're not just solving a problem that someone in the discipline has sort of handed to you um, because they did.
0: Okay, (laughs) I thank you for that, both on behalf of myself and on behalf of the society. And uh, if anyone else wants to ask any questions, you're free to do that now. Let me just bring you the podcast microphone. Is that okay, that you're on the, yeah, reach. I don't get much exercise, so this is
2: perfect for me. Okay, so, um, yeah, thank you for a, a great talk. i I actually bought your book, and I think it's it's a it's a good effort. yeah, it's 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 an yeah, you know, I appreciate the fact that um, there is an effort to explain to us how the world thinks. Um, but for, for for us, European continentals, um it it is profoundly strange why. You know, that would have to be called a history, a global history of philosophy. So, how the world thinks, you know, is, is, is you know, it seems to me a perfect title, and the content, you know, is very interesting. Um, calling all of it philosophy seems a little bit strange to continental um, Europeans because philosophy is not only a Greek word, but it is a singularly European Greek practice in the sense that it's both. Um, humble in the sense that nobody actually acquires wisdom. You're only ever looking for it. And it is at the same time extremely heroic in the sense that all it encourages is to challenge you know those texts that you know that are the rest of global philosophy, if we can call it that. Um, so so you have this humility of you know you never acquire wisdom, you only look for it. It's the Philo bit. Of, of philosophy, and and it's heroic because, you know, it's, it's paradigmatically um, embodied by the figure of Socrates, which is one individual who challenges the texts that I believe that you would call global philosophy because he personally doesn't necessarily believe in it and is ready to die for it. And all of that has led to the singularity of Europe, you know, the science that comes from here, the physics, the chemistry, the biology, um, socialism, capitalism. Pretty much everything that the world has imported from Europe comes from that singular European Greek spirit of both humility and heroism. And so equating that with what I would call wisdom traditions or quasi religions, I find profoundly strange. So I was wondering if you could comment on that.
1: In terms of whether you call something philosophy or not, um, there is a legitimate case to be made for saying, let's just call philosophy this tradition, the one you described, and let's call other things something else. In a way, that's fine, but I think that again, one has to think about the consequences of doing so and what signal that sends, because I think what what it kind of suggests is that it's not just that our tradition is a distinctive and singular tradition. There is also an assumption of superiority, and you've got you which you say, you're unashamedly saying, you say, well, it is superior. You said something like, pretty much everything that's important in the world has come from from that European tradition. Um, Which seems, but that seems to go against The humility aspect of what you're talking about there, because um, there's a kind of humility, there's also a kind of of hubris in that. Um, I think, you know, when it comes to what we categorize as philosophy, well, categorize as anything, I suppose, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be Wittgensteinian about it, which is to say that, you know, in most cases, you can't define the essence of what makes something an X in a in a clear way that you have to look for the the family resemblance and i think that there are strong family resemblances between this western tradition of philosophy and other things which others may simply dismiss or characterize as as mere wisdom traditions and i think that the very least even even if having examined them and looked at them you come to the conclusion that yes as i thought the western tradition is by far and away the best. I think that part of the spirit of humility and questioning requires that one puts one tradition up in comparison against them in an open-minded and critical way. So you say one of the things that Socrates did was he questioned the texts. Well, you know, looking at other traditions of philosophy is a way of questioning our texts, um, not just our texts, but our assumptions. Um, the idea, for example, that, the, that it's heroic that the solitary thinker puts themselves up against uh, traditions and so forth is something that, you know, um, again, I, I think broadly speaking, I think that's a good thing, but um, there's always the risk of overstating and overshooting and you know, imagining that we're more heroic than we are, that we're, we're, we're more autonomous intellects than we actually are, denying the fact that we come from traditions and so forth. So I, I, w- I would de- de- defend, I, I think that even for someone who comes to the conclusion that you've come to um, would benefit from and perhaps has benefited from at least putting our philosophy up to the test of comparison with these other things. Yeah.
0: Any other questions?
1: You've got someone right here, yeah.
2: So what do you think was the importance of the press, of Gutenberg, uh, in uh, the the more knowledge of philosophy or, um, because uh, did the other people in India and China, did they have a press, like the Gutenberg press? because if they didn't then they would need to be very rich to have an mm. army of scribes and to repent their ideas mm. um so what is the importance of, of practical importance of being able to uh, publish our work in, a, in an easy way
1: well it's a very good question i don't pretend to have an answer because i, I didn't sort of like look at that aspect of it actually the dissemination of ideas but i think You're surely right. I mean, one of the things that's evidently the case is that despite the fact there are these many interesting and I think valuable traditions of thought, the West has been in the ascendancy for several centuries. And a lot of that is to do, well, I mean, it's partly technological and partly intellectual. It did take the intellectual lead in science in particular. And yeah, the printing press surely got to be hugely important. It just enables the written word to get to a, a ride of a variety of people. So I think that's important. But what you have got to remember is that a lot of the great canonical texts of any tradition predated it. So it's not a prerequisite of having a great intellectual tradition that you had the printing press. I mean, you know, Aristotle and Plato weren't using printing presses and uh, um, you know, even in so the Middle Ages they weren't either. So it's an interesting, Yes, it's an, it, I, I take your point, it's been vitally important for this dissemination of it and it's probably uh, an important factor in, in why the West became as powerful as it did because it, it found a technology for educating many more people than was possible before, yeah. Yep.
0: Can me run, Ragnar? Right? No. <laughs> I can just hold it for you. Oh, okay, so you also said that uh, morality uh, doesn't come from rationalism, as advocated by Kant or Plato, for example. So, mm. in your opinion, where does it come from, morality, uh, oh. if it cannot be explained by
1: rationality? Yeah. Well, on that, I'm, I'm, I'm we're in the David Hume Tower, and it's David Hume was as as was right as usual. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's the, 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 the short answer is that morality is rooted in a kind of sympathy. If People say empathy, but perhaps not the right word, a kind of moral sympathy. Unless you have some caring for other people, unless you have a capacity to care for the welfare of someone other than yourself, you really can't be um, moral merely knowing the facts about it isn't enough a a sadist knows that by um doing what they do they cause someone pain but they don't care right so it's not that they are lacking any kind of logic circuit they're lacking an emotional circuit right so and the basis of morality is a kind of fellow feeling, a kind of a sympathy for other people. Now, rationality has a lot of work to do because if you genuinely care about other people, then you're going to want to know that the way you're behaving is genu- genuinely going to help them, and is not going to cause them distress. You're going to want to know that the way you organize society is beneficial or not. So uh, reason has this important instrumental role in um, you know in, in, in generating the right kind of moral principles, but at its basis, it's more rooted in sympathy and empathy, and also in um, it's a social thing. Now, there are people like Patricia Churchland and Owen Fanagan, who say that you know morality is at its essence a kind of a mechanism for social problem solving, right? And a lot of people find that. Terrible. Sounds like very shallow, but in, in a way, it is kind of right. It's, it's it's social problem solving predicated on the fact that one of the problems we want to solve is we don't want people to be miserable, right? This is where the sympathy comes in. But I think that's 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 true as well. There's no morality with one person if you're on yourself by yourself in a desert island and there's no sentient life. There's there's no morality, right? There's there's ethics. Ethics being you know whether you flourish or don't flourish so you could have a good or a bad life <laughs> you're not going to have a great life by yourself in this island but you know you can make mistakes and make your life worse and that'd be an ethical mistake but morality is fundamentally about how our actions affect other people so yeah it comes from a, con- a concern for others which is an emotional thing not a rational thing and i don't know a lot of people find this disturbing in a way and i don't see why they should because a lot of people think that unless you can root morality in something which has a kind of absolute claim on us, which can't be denied by anyone at the pain of being irrational, but therefore, you know, r- morality is resting on some kind of shallow basis. I I I do not do not I d I, I don't I don't get that. You're it's demanding more than is than is possible. So yeah and it's good enough for most people as I say I mean as far as I can tell you know China is one of the it's been one of the oldest civilizations in society and it's never based its morality on anything other than you know sympathy and social order you know so it it can be done and it can work yeah Uh, yeah, great. Uh, thanks for the talk yeah, it's really interesting. I just wondered if you had any views on um, what you think the most fruitful way for academic con- like, contemporary academic philosophy in the West to, to engage with other traditions other than just as a sort of kind of mere curiosity. Yeah, um, yeah I don't know. I think that's very tricky because you know, academic life has a certain kind of structure which kind of requires a specialization. And this is often used as the reason why there's not enough, en- there's no engagement without traditions, because it, it's difficult enough, you know, keeping engaging with all the bits of your own tradition without another one. Um, but I think it's a fairly poor excuse, to be honest with you. If you're if you're a philosopher and you're doing working like virtue ethics, for example, you're probably going to understand not a single word of your colleague in philosophy of physics, or very little, you know. So, I mean, even within disciplines, obviously there are you know, (laughs) these cross currents. I think the most useful thing would be um, to find it to be sort of subject-based, topic-based. I think it's identifying those kind of areas of concern where there can be fruitful kind of dialogue and exchange. So, and I've been been to a few workshops which have been organised by the Berggruen Institute. The Berggruen Institute is uh, got a f- couple of programs, but it's very keen on philosophy and culture and sort of intercultural dialogue. And they've, they've had some workshops based around specific themes, such as self and personhood and everything. And you know, when you get people together like that, it, it can be very fruitful and around ethics as well. Some, some of Because the, some, sometimes there's much more similarity than you might think. So... Uh, It's well known, for example, that Confucian virtue ethics and Aristotelian virtue ethics are very, very similar in lots of ways. They even both have this doctrine of the mean, you know, which is completely independently. So that's what I think. But, but I think that's not just about a, uh, a Western, non-Western philosophy thing. I think the whole of academic life needs to make more of those connections. There should be people in like sociology and philosophy departments working together, or you know, maybe in biology and history departments. You know. I think the academic life has become very bad at putting people together who are fundamentally share a lot of interests, but they're in different disciplines so the the problem isn't unique to western non-western philosophy actually so it's, it's a it's a problem generated by the deep specialization of academic life yeah,
0: yeah if you could just hold, oh, you hold you. that thank
1: you thanks uh, kind of on that point um you talked a little bit about how philosophy sort of influenced some culture and some of the places that you'd looked at. Was there any specific um, examples of how philosophy had influenced food in the areas that you... Influenced food? food. You talked about the soup being harmonious. Oh, I see, yeah, that's the kind of... I'm
2: interested in food culture I think it's
1: influenced um, attitudes to food more than it influences food. The the cause and effect thing is is very difficult. I don't have a kind of a strong view on whether or not... um, you know, philosophy influences culture culture influences philosophy and i don't know exactly how those things balance out right so i, I think we would we, struggle to find uh, i'd i'd struggle to find an example of where philosophy has kind of inspired a, a cuisine or a dish uh, specifically but attitudes to food are there so for example if you take okay so in, in japan there are a couple of t- two really good documentaries i've seen in recent years about Food in Japan. One is Jiro Dreams of Sushi, which is have you seen it? It's a great film about a top sushi chef. There's also another film called Ramen Heads, and what's interesting about that is that ramen, So Jiro is this sushi chef, and it's a Michelin-style place. It costs you hundreds of dollars to go there, and everything, and it's really high-end. The Ramen Heads one is about the 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 a uh, ramen restaurant which has run the top ramen restaurant in Japan for three years running. But it's the exact opposite, it's like $8 and you eat, and it's, it's cheap, right? But actually in both cases, um, the, the sort of mentality and way of thinking of the chefs is very, very similar. So what you've got there is an attitude to food in which food isn't a, is a tri- it's not a trivial thing, and the making of food is not a trivial thing, because you, you've got a culture which, unlike our Christian one, hasn't kind of you know, prioritized the, the soul and the spirit and, and put down the body. It's about an appreciation of, the simple things of life the transient things of life as well so you know these things don't take time you go to Jiro's restaurant and you're only in there for about 25 minutes right <laughs> and people queue up for the ramen for longer than they eat it um so that's an appreciation of that and also this sort of like the seriousness of the task it's this is this is largely the zen influence actually in Zen, there's this kind of notion: there's no distinction between um, trivial and, in, and important tasks. That whatever you do, you do it in the right spirit. So whether you're making a humble bowl of ramen, which is going to sell for eight dollars, or whether you're making a, an elaborate sushi dish, which is for going for three hundred, it's serious work, and you dedicate yourself. And there is a kind of, um, you know, and, and and there's a real a real value in that. And I, so. you you see you see that relationship between food and culture um i don't know what's influencing what though you know it's it's the cause and effect is is quite difficult too whatever whereas i think you know in in protestant northern european cultures you know food has this uh functional role you know so you know eating without thinking there's, we're not meant to enjoy it, and they have the other guilt thing as well. So it's the binge-purge kind of cycle we go into, you know. So you are, you're either you're either not eating something, or it's like you're going dry January, or you're having your, you know, um, detox weekend, or you're stuffing your face with something and feeling terrible about it, you know. So uh, these there are certain attitudes to food are influenced. Yeah, I find it interesting. I find do find that interesting. Yeah. We've oh, got oh. more.
0: Uh, I'll start up here. and I come down?
1: <laughs> <laughs> you hey, about food. You, you reminded me I need to have my dinner at some stage. But like, well, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> so, so do I. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think this book kind of like you've described how philosophy influences culture and kind of sets up different cultural standards and norms in, in different parts of the world. Uh, what worries you most or excites you most if you if you want to take a more positive spin about maybe not so much the mingling but the, but the conflict uh, of different philosophical ideas in the next fifty years on the global stage all oh, right so so you've got the the the, sort of the 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 scary and the exciting thing um i well okay the, uh, i start perhaps i'll start with the negative shall i um i it's it's I think, it, I think it is, I have to say, I find it quite sobering to think about the tradition of Islamic philosophy because not, not in that ridiculous way of thinking we're heading for an inevitable clash of civilizations and, you know, that it's impossible to be both uh, Muslim and liberal and open-minded. I think the encouraging thing is, you look at the history of Islamic thought, the encouraging thing is that there have been moments of great openness and acceptance and liberality. In fact, you know, and the the kind of extreme narrow-mindedness we see in some parts of the Muslim world now is an anomaly. So that's kind of encouraging. At the same time, the the the, the seeming impossibility of any kind of, you know, in order in order for there to be a, a philosophy in the Islamic world which separated itself from the absolute final word of the Quran, or so we'd have to cease to be Islamic, essentially. That's sorry, I find a little bit depressing, but not the cause of huge panic, and certainly no reason to kind of think there should be a class of civilizations. Um, more, most encouraging, though, is I think that there are really positive resources, to use that sort of horrible word, in other cultures that I think can really help us, you know. I think that we're coming out of... We're coming out of 2,000 years of Christianity, and we don't necessarily have all the resources in our culture to kind of, you know, reconstruct things properly. And you often get this criticism that what a lot of secular humanists are trying to do is to kind of keep a lot of the, uh, you know, practices and substantive things of Christianity without the Christian basis this is a criticism made I think often unfairly but there's something there's something to that but you know there are resources elsewhere so for example I do I do think particularly in um, sort of Japanese thought I find particularly useful and interesting actually because I think that if, if we are to accept that this is the one life we have and this is the only world we have, how do we stop that being a kind of like desperate attempt to seize the day in which we're never satisfied because the day is slipping through your fingers? I think that you look to cultures like Japan and you, you have a, a different tradition of thinking about the acceptance of transience and the, embrace the natural world which which allows for a more accepting, karma, you know, and pro-social, not greedy way of, of, of looking at it. So I, I think we've got quite a lot to gain, actually. And it doesn't require us to completely give up as well. There's a metaphor I used earlier, which was borrowed. You know, this idea of what's background in one culture is foreground in another. And another metaphor I use is that you can kind of think of all the different kind of philosophical ideas and concepts as like dials on a mixing board like in a recording studio in a recording studio you record all the tracks and then you have to sort of decide the volume of each one to make the whole thing hang together and i think that what we can see is that there are certain ideals and values which we can some we need to turn down a bit some we can turn up a bit and so in that sense we don't have to create a completely different tune to it's metaphor for the Western world to sing to—we just need to adjust our volumes. Metaphor might be getting too strained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Three. <laughs> oh, sorry. How accurate I try is it brief. to how accurate is
0: it to use um, Chinese advertisement to represent Chinese society when? all Chinese advertisement is filtered through the CCP and in the last 10 years they have been repeatedly trying to infuse Confucius philosophy with them to try and make themselves more part of Chinese culture so the average person thinks they are Chinese culture. So how accurate is it to use advertisement as an example of Confucius philosophy being active in Chinese society when 10 years ago for like the last 50 years yeah. since the CCP got into power they banned all confucius philosophy yeah, yeah, I know. they yeah. destroyed yeah. its statues its monastery, everything mm. so how accurate is it to say that advertisement is a ref- like a
1: complete reflect yeah a complete reflection of the philosophy of a society short short example is is example it's not evidence right i think the point is this if i was to say look this is evidence that would be wrong um, because but it's an example I think there's a clear difference between those two things. If you've, if you've got reason to believe that a, um, an, idea, a, an ideal way of thinking is wide, very dominant in a culture, and what's interesting, what you're talking about the suppression of Confucianism is it didn't work, that's why it's coming back. You know. um, it has deeper roots than, than even the, the Chinese Communist Party could, could, could rule out. If you have reason to, to believe because everything tells you that and all the people who know the country tell you that this value is there, then it's legitimate to use an example of an, of an ad, 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 advertisement to, to illustrate that. What would be wrong is to say, ah, oh, look, I found evidence, right? My travels were very limited, and I was never pretending that when I traveled, I was like, you know, uh, going, aha, and seeing things. I, I traveled to sort of like try and, you know, in a sense, find some narrative color, some interest, see a few things up close. So that's my short answer to that one, which I hope is... Adequate. Or <laughs> um, I'm going to be trying short with both these, but we'll see.
2: Um, so, acknowledging that uh, tra- different traditions of thought have uh, essentially influenced, the, for example, the size and the scale and the scope of welfare in mm. different states, have you looked into, um, or do you cover in your book? Uh, how the individual relates to the state's role. In a way, like, what is the state? How, how individuals in different parts of the world understand the role of and the meaning of the state? Oh, so...
1: Um, I think the short answer... And
2: the institutions, basically.
1: Yeah, no, the short answer, I think, is I have to say no. I have to say no. I mean, I wasn't really looking at the, the relationship between the individual and the state. Um, there, there, there are things in the book which relate to that, but I, I think I would be a liar if I said that that was a, a central... Um, um, factor there, so yeah. Um, hey, guess what? There were lots of things I I, I didn't cover. <laughs> um, it would have to be 30 volumes to cover everything. So I'm sorry about that. The only good news is that means that it's a short answer with good reason, rather than a short answer because I'm lazy.
0: Bringing across resource from other cultures mm. to, I realise that's a brutal term, but yeah. well, you said it, so I'll use it. Um, and we mentioned Japanese food cultures, there, mm. and you did mention virtually the table, like mm. the food shakunin, like, you, yeah. How feasible is it to bring across those more positive food cultures and apply them into somewhere with a broken food culture, yeah. like like the UK? when those concepts are diametrically opposed to our consumerist food relationship?
1: Yeah, well that's a very good question. And I think that, you know, you, the question about how much you can import and um, borrow ideas from other cultures is, is itself a really interesting one. And I think that you have to kind of acknowledge the fact that ideas can travel, but when they travel they'll, they'll change and mutate. I mean, you know, that's what happened with Buddhism. Buddhism traveled, but it it changed according to its culture. Islamic thought did as well, actually. Islam has very different characteristics in, uh, say, you know, Indonesia than it does in the Middle East and so forth. So you can never expect to import something wholesale. Um, But I think, for me, the encouragement that you can nonetheless, as it were, learn from other cultures, the, the metaphor isn't so much about importing them, actually. it's I think it's most useful when you can use them to observe something in your own culture, which perhaps is neglected or so forth, and therefore turn it up, maybe. Um, in our case, so we don't really have that same tradition at all. So maybe, maybe in this case, we do have to do a little bit of importing. Um, but you know, an important change, it won't be quite the same um, but it may not be the worst for it. Because the other thing is, you know, ideas exist in kind of ecosystems. So that's one reason. The one reason you can't just import an idea is that ideas don't exist in isolation. And so the way in which say, the, 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 as, you, as you, your question suggests, the way in which thinking about food fits into the Japanese culture is related to the way they think about all sorts of other things as well. But is it possible to to make our culture to have a, a more mindful attitude towards towards food if you like, a thing which which takes enjoyment without grasping to use that kind of Buddhist term? I think you know perhaps you could and you know there are some signs that people are beginning to appreciate that a bit more or already but um, I don't want to get into the game of prediction now because, God knows what exactly will happen, you know. Um, but, you know, we're doomed if we don't think we can l- learn at all. We, we have learned. That's the point is we have learned. I mean, the history of philosophy, one thing I haven't mentioned enough, of course, is that I was talk- talking about how one has to be careful not to essentialize and overgeneralize, but the history has all been about the transfer of ideas. Um, ideas have moved. Aristotle, as I said, came to us through the Islamic world originally and through the medieval world, uh, to us today. So I, you know, ideas have always been moving. Um, so we just could, we can, we can make them move better and faster. Maybe think,
0: yeah. Right. Thank you so much. Just, uh, kind of concluding remarks. Um, Um, Noticed that um, it just appeared to us that uh, the current committee will leave in in March, so that's not too far off. So I was thinking, uh, what have I been using my presidency for, uh, as it were? And these are uh, just the kind of conversations I've been wanting to have. And I hope you've all enjoyed it. And thank you all for your questions. And uh, thank you very much for coming. It was greatly inspiring. Thank you.
1: Thank you.